So I uh, became a, a Christian under the influence of a great writer named C.S. Lewis, especially in his uh, masterpiece, Mere Christianity. And one of my favorite things about that book and in general about C.S. Lewis is his emphasis on free will. And this paragraph, I remember just popped out at me when I first read it. Um, Early on in the book, he says, God created things which had free will, creatures which can go either wrong or right. Free will is what made evil possible, yes, but it's also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. God knew what would happen if they used their freedom the wrong way. Apparently, he thought it was worth the risk. Now, I love that paragraph. That really helped me to believe and understand who God was. I love the idea that God uh, gave up some control of his universe, uh, took some risk to give us freedom so that we could choose him freely, so we could love him. And I still think there is wisdom in that idea. But the more I read the Bible, and especially Isaiah, um, the more I doubt that Lewis is entirely right. I certainly doubt that God took any risks, and I know for a fact that Scripture would say he does not give up any control whatsoever of the universe, even in our free choices. Psalm 115.3 says, God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. It doesn't sound like any kind of loss of control. Daniel 4.35, he does according to his will, and no one can ward off his hand or say, what have you done? Ephesians 1.11, he works all things according to the counsel of his immutable will. And then here in Isaiah, this is not the only place, but I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And I'd say all those verses can be summed up in this one word that in the Reformed tradition among Presbyterians we absolutely love, and the word is called sovereignty. Uh, It's a word that's sometimes used of nations, that that you have uh, essentially control over what goes on in your nation. Uh, Sovereignty. And it's been a very, very hard concept for me uh, to come to terms with. It's taken me... Years And even now, it's really hard when I read passages like this to believe that it's true. But I would say it's, it's biblical, and therefore I would also say that it is beautiful. And um, it is the foundation of grace. I would say, without sovereignty, you can have no true grace. Where 100% of the initiative and the efficacy of salvation is from God, and God alone. And so I want to look at both sovereignty and grace. And I'm talking about pure grace, sovereign grace is sometimes what it's called, where uh, it is all from God, it goes through God, and it comes back to God. So first of all, sovereignty. And obviously the idea of sovereignty comes from the idea that there's one God who created the entire universe. Verse 12, Isaiah says, God says through Isaiah, I made the earth, I created man, I stretched out the heavens, I commanded all their hosts. So we created the whole world and have created nature and the universe. Therefore, he is in control of nature, which is asserted in verse 8. Shower, O heavens, from above. Let the clouds rain down. Let the earth open. I think that means the ground receiving the rain. He's commanding these different areas uh, of nature 
to do things. I, the Lord, have created it. So he controls creation. He, he controls nature. Therefore, he controls history. Because if you think about it, human history happens in one little tiny speck of dust in one galaxy among billions and billions in the universe. So why would he not control that if he controls everything else? And indeed, it says here in verse 1, he subdues nations. He looses the belt of kings, which I think means that he uh, humiliates them. He opens doors. And even the tiniest, most random-seeming things that happen in our lives, uh, the scriptures mysteriously assert that those things happen because of the will of God. This is an absolutely crazy verse that I had never read till a few years ago. Uh, it's Proverbs 16.33, and this is what it says. We may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. Now, we played a lot of Monopoly at the beach this year, which is an incredible game. Well into my 40s, I still think it's probably the best board game I've ever played. And um, I would rarely be losing in these games with my children. And, you know, if I were losing, I would, um, I would get so frustrated, uh, which is crazy. But I would say, I would always say, I cannot believe that you keep missing my properties with hotels on them. You just, every time, it's just so lucky the dice just keep coming up perfectly for you. And I would get so frustrated. And, you know, what if one of my children had, had said, you know, Dad, um, we may throw the dice, but the Lord determines the outcome. I, uh, they didn't say that, but um, it probably would have angered me if they had. But eventually, I think it would have helped me to see that even those numbers coming up on the dice are part of the way that God has written the universe. The outcome of every single football game yesterday and today, all the random elements, the wind shifts, the crazy parts, the blocked punts, uh, blocked field goals, they were all part of this bizarre plan. I don't know why that God determines the outcome of the roll of the dice, but it's asserted in Proverbs 16. And... Uh, a beautiful thing about this idea is that the, the illusion that we have control is broken by the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, uh, which is such a relief when you finally let it go uh, that you really have control ultimately over what happens in your life. Uh, a great 18th century French Jesuit author, Jean-Pierre de Cassade, wrote this book called Abandonment to Divine Providence. And he says, in the, in the state of abandonment to sovereignty... Now, this guy is Catholic, but uh, that, that doesn't mean he doesn't believe in sovereignty. Sometimes uh, Calvinists and Reformed types think that all the other types of Christians don't believe in sovereignty. That's not true. Uh, this guy, this Jesuit, clearly believes in sovereignty. He says, in the state of abandonment to sovereignty, one's disposition resembles the atmosphere, which is affected by every breeze or the water which flows into any shaped vessel exactly fitting every crevice. So ironically, uh, there is freedom in sovereignty. You would think that it would make you feel like a robot, like you're uh, a, a puppet on a string, a marionette. But there's actually freedom in it because you can abandon yourself to what's happening, um, which is especially hard when you think about your own choices, going back to the Lewis quote. Uh, it's usually right where we... We think that right where our choices begin is where his sovereignty kind of ends. That that's a little area of life, that little tiny circle of our choices 
is, uh, is where his control of the universe comes to an end. But again, Proverbs chapter 16, 9, we make our own plans, but the Lord determines our steps. Now, that's an amazing combination of both the paradox of you choose, you make the plans, but then what actually happens as a result of that somehow is what God has determined. It's an amazing verse. And it doesn't just apply to the big decisions in life. It applies to every decision we make. Um, I've heard a lot of Christians say that, you know, God doesn't care about where you go out to eat that night. We have a lot of arguments about where we're going to go out to eat that night. Uh, last Tuesday was Weston Cafe, Kidoba, Chipotle. We ended up going to Chipotle. And um, surely not, God has nothing to do with that choice, you said. That it doesn't matter what you choose. And in one sense, it doesn't matter. But, I mean, who else brought it to pass that, that we went to Chipotle. Um, no one. It was, it was God. He, he says in verse 5 and 6, I am the Lord and there is no other. In other words, I, I am sovereign and there is no other rival. There is no co-author of the story. or There's no co-editor. There's no editor. Uh, there's no ghostwriter. It's entirely the story that God wrote. And a lot of the prayer requests, uh, the, the prayer requests that we just got from y'all, hopefully dozens of them, usually there are, these prayer requests are often prayers for, um, for guidance, especially among younger people. Older people are, are praying more relief uh, from the choices they made. Um, younger people are more praying for guidance about the choices they're about to make. And there's a lot of angst in those prayer requests. Uh, what should I uh, major in? Where should I uh, go after I get out of school? Uh, who should I date? What should my career be? Where should I live next? You know, on and on and on. All these questions. Uh, in the 20s, that's a big part of life. I was talking to someone this past week who said that she was not at all sure she's supposed to be in Winston-Salem. And she was kind of a, um, in a state of frustration about that. And I remember when I was 24 years old, living in Raleigh, uh, going to Pullen Park and just agonizing over this decision that I had to make. Should I be a, um, a structural engineer or a pastor? Um, should I um, be in Raleigh or should I go to Richmond? Should I marry Margie or not marry Margie? These were huge decisions that I was going to make in my life. And uh, the, the thoughts and the prayers uh, just kind of paralyzed me. But what I would have said to myself now looking back and what I would say to you if you're in that place is you can really relax and take a deep breath and, uh, and know that uh, you should decide um, with wisdom, uh, with understanding, with a lot of prayer and a lot of uh, discussion with friends. You should do all those things, but ultimately you cannot thwart God's plan for your life. You cannot mess up his plan. He has a plan, and it will come to pass. I used to love the Choose Your Own Adventures books. I don't know if they still write those things, but 250 million copies have been sold. 250 million copies. They were basically like a normal story, if you haven't seen one of these things. But at the bottom of the page, occasionally you get to make a choice. So it would say, uh, enter the castle, turn to page 44, go back home, turn to page 88. And you just kept hitting these forks, one after another. So fight the dragon or run away, marry the princess, stay a bachelor, on and on and on. And then at the end, there were like uh, dozens of outcomes that could occur at the end of the book. And some of the outcomes were terrible. And that is not the way that the, the universe works. It's not a choose-your-own-adventure book. Uh, you know, if you're thinking, I've totally screwed up my life, 
How could God be sovereign over my sin, my horrible choices? God says, um, I form light and create darkness. Verse 7 again, I make well-being and create calamity. In other words, even in the dark parts of life, even in your own terrible choices, you cannot thwart his plan. You cannot, you cannot get outside of the will of God. I, I hear people say that, and I kind of cringe. Uh, you, cannot, you, can, you can do what is wrong. You can break one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, you can sin, but you cannot get outside of the will of God in, in, the, in the deepest sense of that word, will. Um, but it, I, I know this is hard, this, especially this part about um, calamity and distress. I mean, that verse 7 is a really difficult verse, especially if, you're, if you are stuck in Winston-Salem. And if you uh, feel like you'd like to have a better job or if you want to get married and you want to have a child and these are not happening, you can get really, really frustrated. It can feel like you're in a place of darkness. Or if you feel like your parents are trying to control you or your children are out of control, it can feel like uh, calamity or maybe even um, wicked people. You know, wicked people are, are against you. Maybe your husband, maybe your boss, maybe it's a truly wicked person. That is, or maybe you're the truly wicked person. Either way, God says, going back to Proverbs 16, and that chapter obviously is a lot about sovereignty, a Proverbs 16. But um, it says in Proverbs 16, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. So all these objections we have, we keep trying to get, what about this, what about that? And God just keeps checking us all along the way. Every objection, he just checks each one of them. And I, I know this is hard. Um, you know, if I had heard this, um, maybe when I, I was, um, you know, when I was about 30, it was, was really beginning to wrestle a lot with this idea of sovereignty. And if I had heard this sermon, I would have said, you're asking me to believe in a God who's a monster. Like, I just can't believe in a God that would actually uh, allow, that would actually uh, ordain evil things. Without being the author of sin, would somehow that would be part of the plan, would be this calamity, this darkness. And um, God, God anticipates that frustration that you're going to have. And that's why he says, I think very gently and kindly in verse 9, woe to him, which means uh, how sad it would be to someone if they were to strive with him who formed them. Woe, woe to, to you. It's going to be hard on you. It's going to be sad for you. If you continue to strive with the maker and the author of your life. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? And I guess what Isaiah is saying there is, why do you think you should be able to understand the, uh, the mystery of God's purposes in the universe? You know, I was a physics major and I was going to be an engineer, so I'm the type of person that wants to know exhaustively why things happen. I, I really believed um, in, my, uh, in my late teens that, that human beings would eventually be able to understand everything. We could answer every question if we just kept discovering more and more through science. And so um, even when I became a Christian, I was, I was so frustrated with verses like this one where it seems like God is like a bad Sunday school teacher just saying, you know, shut up, bad question. Who else has a question? And we've all had teachers like that, that just shut down any investigative conversation. But again, look at verse 10. It's not like that. He's saying that he's a father or a mother, uh, and, and it's, 
woe to the, to the child that would question the father or the mother in terms of what they're creating, uh, what, who they're begetting. And I think what he's saying there is it's a little, can a little child uh, really understand uh, why he or she has to take a nap? I mean, those of you who are children that take naps, um, some adults take naps too, but the children that have to take naps, um, it can be one of the most horrifying parts of a day. Um, I don't remember it, but uh, I remember my children, and they hated it. It was like having to hold them down. And when they're screaming and flailing around because you know, their, their friend is over, they have to take a nap, they cannot understand why they have to do that. And, and they, they couldn't even imagine a possible reason why they would have to do that. Um, but wouldn't it be woeful if the child were to doubt the parent's love because of the nap? And I think that's what Isaiah is saying. And uh, having said that, I don't pretend that this is an easy thing to hear. Uh, I know that first point about sovereignty is really difficult. But it, it's, I think, the only basis for the second point, which is, um, which is grace. And just to close on that first point, if anyone tries to explain to you why God is doing these hard things, just don't listen to them. Because that, Isaiah would also say, woe to you who tries to explain God's sovereignty to other people. We do not know these things. They're great mysteries. So that's sovereignty. Uh, now, how does that lead to grace? Well, I would, uh, I would define grace as um, uh, loving your enemy, is the love of the enemy. And so it's, um, in a very simple illustration, it's a mother who is rubbing uh, her child's back that just mouthed off to her, yelled at her, slapped her, Rubbing the child's back and putting the child to sleep. That's grace. That's a daily experience um, of, of parenthood, is that kind of grace, where you're loving your child as your child is hating you. Uh, another example would be a boss that, that takes the blame for some scheduling debacle that some other coworker has committed where they actually messed up, and you just absorb the blame. We've, we've all had, to, had that happen. Especially if that coworker always blames you for being disorganized and you have to take the blame for their scheduling debacle. That's another, just kind of one of those little daily aspects of grace that we're called uh, to, to love our enemy, to at least the person we feel like is an enemy at that moment. That's grace. But there's another part of grace that's even a harder part of grace, which is to let your enemy love you and to receive their love from someone uh, who you consider to be an enemy. So it's not so much the giving of grace, I think, as it is the receiving of grace that is really difficult. They're both hard. But what God wants from his people here in this passage, and this is the, the heart of this passage, is that they would receive this overwhelming gift, this stunning gift from this person that they would have considered their ultimate enemy. It, to have even read the word on the page would have been like um, jarring to an Israelite. Probably to Isaiah, who wrote it. When he saw the vision of this, he probably was um, shaking his head, even as he wrote. But look at verse 1. Cyrus, whose hand I have grasped. Now, Cyrus was the king of Persia, and he ruled uh, from 560 to 530 B.C. And he ruled over Israel when Israel was in bondage to Persia. So think about Pharaoh and Israel. You know, Pharaoh enslaving the Jews. Same idea. This is just a lot later, a thousand years later. But same idea. So Cyrus would have been 
kind of like Hitler, but, but 2,500 years earlier. Literally, similar to that. They would have thought of Cyrus that way. And so here's what God does. Um, as you hear the end of the passage, towards the end of the passage, you see that Cyrus made this decree. Uh, in 536 BC, he made a decree. Not only did he liberate the Jewish slaves, he said, you're free now. He also said, uh, I'm going to fund your trip back to Jerusalem. And I'm going to give you money to build your temple again. So this huge gift from this person that they would have considered their ultimate enemy. I mean, imagine receiving that. That would, that would not have been easy. And not only that, but God says to, Cyrus, uh, to, to Isaiah, Cyrus is my anointed in verse 1. That would have been really hard for Isaiah to hear. Isaiah would have imagined that the anointed would have been a king like David or like Moses, a liberator. Um, anointed means Messiah. So he's saying, Cyrus is my Messiah. And then he goes on to say, I have grasped your right hand, which is a sign of deep intimacy to hold the hand. So um, God is just saying, I, I am with Cyrus completely. And he is your Messiah. And to an Israelite, that would have been really, really hard to receive. That's grace. I once had a colleague who uh, irritated me to death to the point where I, I really wanted her to kind of to yell at me and gossip about me and maybe even try to get me fired just so I could dislike her more. It was to that level. And um, I don't think any of you know her. I taught at two high schools with many female colleagues. So don't try to figure out who this is. So this, here's this person that I extremely dislike. And so what does she do for me one day? You know, you, you can fill in the rest of the story. One day she gives me this extravagant gift, very redemptive. I don't even remember what it was. I think I blocked it out. It was too painful. This sacrificial extravagant gift from an enemy is a horrible thing to receive. And I want you to think about that person for you right now, that you would not want to give you that kind of gift. And that's what God is doing for his people. He's saying, receive the biggest gift imaginable from your worst enemy. He, uh, he wants him to be like a monument to his grace. And uh, it's really worth asking yourself, are you the type of person that can receive grace? It's almost easier to feel like a giver of grace, well, it definitely is, than a receiver of grace. And so are you good at, at receiving gifts? A, I mean, maybe... You can't even receive a gift very well. But B, can you receive that gift from someone you don't really like? That's what Isaiah, I think, would ask you. Um, And I think what the world needs to see, um, what the world needs the church to be like, is a place where all these people are beggars for grace. Where um, we are monuments to God's grace. Not necessarily strong and virtuous and powerful and victorious people. Although that's not a bad thing. And the church sometimes is like, is like that. Uh, that comes out of grace. But, but for the most part, not so much the magnanimous giver of grace, but the beggar for grace. And so it wouldn't be the Statue of Liberty. That wouldn't be our monument with the hand held high and the you know, expression of strength on her face and the crown. Uh, that's not really the church's symbol. It would be more like a huge statue in New York Harbor of a beggar on his knees in rags asking for help. That would be the monument for um, the church. Verse 6 says, uh, I do this so that all people may know, in other words, not just Israel, 
God is doing this, this thing through Cyrus, so that the whole world would know, the Persians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, they would all see from the rise of the sun to the setting, so from all from the west to the east, there is none besides me. And I am the Lord, and there is no other. In other words, the only God is the God of grace. The one sovereign God is the God of sovereign grace. It's all his doing. And he comes to love us, and he knows 